Well, I always say, we need more banjo. And I finally listened. Uh, I wonder if you can remember the most awkward dinner party you've ever attended or ever been a part of or even heard of. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Dad's work uh, took us overseas quite a lot, and so we were, uh, there, there were lots of these sort of international dinner parties, and uh, one of our family members at the age of four, I'm giving anonymity here just to protect myself, <laughs> and I will speak in very PC language, uh, just so no one's upset, uh, but one of the family members at the age of four we were at one of these parties. And the four-year-old noticed that a man who was from a part of the world where his ethnic group was primarily slender was of... He was curious why this man was of generous proportions. So he asked an adult member of the family... But as four-year-olds often do, he asked it quite loudly. Why is this man of generous proportions? <laughs> Embarrassed, the adult member, also anonymity for protection, uh, adult member of the family gave a gentle rebuking, uh, gentle caress across the face. <laughs> to which the child responded, why did you hit me? He is fat. <laughs> That was an awkward situation for sure. But the dinner party we read about in Luke chapter 14 is awkward because one of the guests is pointing out the inconsistencies in the lives of the host and the other guests. Now that sounds like a dinner party that you might want to miss. And that sounds like a guest that you might not want to invite back next time. Well, here's the rub. He's the guest that everyone in this room has invited into their heart if they call themselves a Christian. Because Jesus wants to stir up good questions in your heart, a bit unlike the four-year-old. Jesus doesn't come to, to rent out a little room in your heart. He's here to completely renovate and restore your home. He's here to completely renovate and restore your heart. And as we submit ourselves to his restoring work, as we submit ourselves to his kingship and rule in our lives, as we read about what he has called us to, as we read about what his kingdom looks like, we find that he upsets the natural order of things. His kingdom does not look like the natural order of things here. They are radically different. So, let's pray together that we would be able to see what Christ calls his followers to and from, that we would be receptive to his teaching. Father, uh, as Robert has prayed and Paul has Reiterated, we ask that you would do a transforming work here. We pray that we would have teachable hearts, uh, Father, that uh, your spirit can come and minister 
open our eyes to see the truth from your word, for we know that uh, it's only by the power of the blood of, of Christ that we're able to see these things, and only through the power of your spirit uh, that we can understand. And so, Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Well, uh, we are picking up in Luke's gospel uh, in chapter 14, and I'm going to read for us. Uh, that is page 1038, if you have a ESV Pew Bible. We're going to read uh, 24 verses. Uh, Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dinner at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said, uh, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then, his master. then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, it might be helpful if we did a, a brief overview of, uh, of who the Pharisees are. 
Is there something on at 9 o'clock? Why, this is, I'm not used to this many people being here. I'm <laughs> quite caught off guard here. Uh, anyway, it's not daylight savings, is it? Uh, so I thought it'd be helpful if we did an overview of, of who the Pharisees are to help us better understand what's happening in this story here. So the, the Pharisees are, they were, they, they were devout, they were extremely zealous for the Mosaic law, and they were zealous for their extra-biblical laws that they themselves had created. The sect uh, originated during the intertestamental period. So think that little blank page between uh, uh, Malachi and Matthew, so that period between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, They were born out of a a spiritual revolt against the influence of of the Greek and Roman thought and culture on the Jewish people. They called for a a separation from paganism uh, and a return to that strict adherence to the Old Testament law. The Pharisees were laymen. They were not wealthy like the Sadducees. They generally came from the middle class, and even though they were few in number, they had a lot of influence on the common man. Ironically, the Pharisees looked down on the common people condescendingly uh, because they were ignorant of the law, and they saw them as beneath them. Now, their theology was in many ways biblically correct. They believed in the resurrection, they believed in angels and demons and predestination and human responsibility and the Messiah's earthly kingdom. But while having some good theology, they failed to live up to their impossible standards themselves, which is why Jesus calls them hypocrites. They wanted the respect of people and they wanted the respect of God. And Jesus was revealing their hypocrisy because they're refusing the very message of the gospel. They didn't want a Messiah who told them that they needed to repent and confess. They didn't want a Messiah who told them that they must decrease and he must increase. They didn't want a Messiah who opposed the things they stood for. And so we entered this dinner party where it is uh, the Sabbath And Jesus has been invited to be a participant. And verse 1 says, They were watching him very closely. What a strange line. They were wanting to find fault with him. They wanted to find a reason to bring Jesus down. And they found lots. But none of them were for legitimate reasons. For their own reasons, their own feelings. Then verse 2 And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, here's a question I asked myself as I read this. Is this a setup by the Pharisees or is it not? I don't know. Uh, Maybe the man really just happened to be around. I I doubt he was invited to the party uh, unless it was for sinister purposes. But nevertheless, this man shows up. Now, if you remember from a few weeks back... Uh, when Jesus is asked about, what, about the people who died in Galilee at the hands of Pilate and the people who died in Jerusalem when the Tower of Siloam fell, the Jewish people thought that these things were God's immediate judgment on sin, that they were all deserving of that punishment. 
And Jesus was saying, that's not how things work. That these things happen, and what is more important is that you repent and be in good standing with God. Well, they certainly would have thought that this man with dropsy in his condition was in his condition for a reason. Dropsy is when you have a a collection of fluid built up and it causes swelling. Uh, It's a condition of a disease, whether it's your heart or your kidneys, uh, but it's not the disease itself. And so here it is. It's a Sabbath. And here comes this man. What will Jesus do? He healed the woman that was bent over double in chapter 13 on the Sabbath. Will he do it again? Remember, there's nothing preventing healing on the Sabbath in the law of Moses. The only place you find that restriction is in the traditions of the elders in their own, the Pharisees' own writings, their own traditional writings. And so Jesus speaks before he does anything, which is a brilliant tactic, because he can see through their plan if it is intentional or through their legalism whether it's intentional or not. And he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day or not? And they were silent. Then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. What is Jesus showing us in this healing of this man? He is showing us the character of God. That God is merciful. God is less concerned with what the religious leaders think. He's not concerned with what man-made laws the Pharisees have created. He's concerned with a man who is suffering. And what better day than the Sabbath to display his authority and power over the created order, over his creation? He's not violating the law. He's violating their own law. And sometimes we do this, don't we? We can create a law by which we think God should operate. And when that law is broken, we feel violated by God. I talked with a, a man the other day who was armed to try to refute God to me. Scripture is corrupted. Uh, there's so many inconsistencies in the Bible. How do we even know that, that Jesus existed? Well, finally, we got down to the core issue. He had grown up in the church, and he had a family member who died at a young age. She was a believer, but the circumstances around her, her life and her death greatly upset him. He saw no justice in, uh, in the process from his perspective. His world operates by his rules. If God existed, then he had to operate within those rules. And the second they were broken, to him, God did not exist. This, beloved, are the consequences of creation trying to make rules for the creator. That's not who said that. That's Bruce. In case you were wondering. But this is what the, the, the Pharisees had done for Jesus, right? They've created their own laws, and they want him to abide by their laws. You will never be satisfied if, that is your, if that's your framework and the way you're thinking. 
Well, if you remember earlier, I told you that the Pharisees wanted the respect of people. And, and one of the people that they wanted respect from was each other. And so in verse 7, we read, Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down at the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, can I say, this could be interpreted as a self-serving strategy for achieving recognition. That you fake self-deprecation, a false humility. (gasps) Who, me? Well, sure, I'll be moved up to the head of the table only to receive what you wanted all along, which is praise for who you are and recognition for your humility. It sounds wonderful. I kind of would mind that too much. Sounds like a good deal. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. He is advocating genuine humility that waits for eschatological vindication independence on God's gracious gift. You see, I'm using big theological terms so that you think I am smart. And now I'm going to break it down for you to show you how humble I am. If you're following the illustration. You can be humble when you recognize your value. Your worth is not wrapped up in what you know or anything that gives you a false sense of identity. You can be humble when your identity is secure in Christ, is safe in Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul knew the the Greek rhetorical techniques of the day, but he didn't want people to be impressed with him. He didn't want the Corinthians to think, wow, Paul is so impressive. He's brilliant. He wanted people to be impressed with Christ. He wanted them to say, wow, Jesus is impressive. You don't need the impressive seat among the group because you know that the actual value in the grand scheme of things is not that great. The recognition here that is made at the end is likely describing the recognition that will take place uh, in the heavens, with God in the heavens. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I struggle with this, to be completely transparent with you. I I want people to think highly of me because of my abilities. I I want people to find me competent. And I am always so impressed when I meet genuinely impressive people who carry themselves in such a way as not to concern themselves with this. I am impressed with genuinely impressive 
with genuine humility, people who exude that. And then I think, that's what I really want, but I'm not there yet, so please pray for me, and I'll pray for you. This always reminds me of the, the story, I'm sure you've heard it before, uh, the story of the interview with George Whitfield. He and John Wesley obviously differed on some theological matters, but, but, but Whitfield was always careful not to create problems in public that could be used to hinder the preaching of the gospel. And so when someone asked Whitfield if he thought he would see Wesley in heaven, Whitfield replied, I fear not. For he will be so near the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get sight of him. That is genuine humility. Well, then Jesus moves from the rejection of self-interest as a guest to the rejection of self-interest as a host, keeping up with the banquet theme. He said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner party or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What's the lesson here? Stop having your rich friends over for dinner? No one laughed at that because you all were thinking... Well, I'd like to do that. Stop having your family over for a meal? I don't think that's the point here because rich people need friends too. Uh, the idea here is, is reciprocity, right? It's a, a mutual exchanging. And the question here is what do you value? Do you seek to advance your status and your agenda? then by all means, spend all your time and your energy with those who will benefit you in the here and now. But if you seek to serve the role that the humble person takes, then you will seek the benefit of those who may not benefit you in this life, in the here and now. The, the poor brothers and sisters, those without the material means, I can tell you I've been more edified, encouraged, and challenged over a cheap bowl of noodles with a godly person than I have ever been with an expensive meal with a person of little substance. Jesus healed the man with dropsy at the beginning of this chapter, and I would assume that he was a man of little means. I wonder if the Pharisees would think differently if he was a man of extraordinary means or, or if he had great political connections or, or, or if he could in some way repay the favor. Jesus says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do not focus on the here and now. Consider eternity with your actions in the here and now. Your humility and your deeds will be recognized and repaid in the afterlife. Well, if you haven't noticed, this has been a terribly awkward dinner party so far. Jesus sees the man, uh, whether he's being set up or not, and he addresses the issue beforehand in, in, in regards to, to mercy and the Sabbath. And they cannot reply to these things. And he tells a parable addressing the very things that they are doing at the dinner party, seeking honor in the here and now. 
And I would imagine the guests are wondering, why did they invite him to this dinner? Was it just so Jesus could be a big party pooper? Then Jesus mentions the resurrection of the just. And one of the guests, if it's correct, if this is what he's doing, it's quite funny, but one of the guests, I think, sees an opportunity to change the subject. Oh, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Uh, He uses this uh, expression uh, with the understanding that he thinks that the kingdom of God is in the distant future. It's a safe, pious utterance to say, well, now we've talked about that for long enough. Let's talk about something else. Perhaps he thinks Jesus will say, thank you, finally. Somebody said it right. Let's talk about, you know, the Bethlehem baseball team or something. But that's not what happens. It's essentially that this man has just handed dynamite to Jesus to blow this discussion even deeper because Jesus seizes the opportunity to dig even deeper and further with these religious leaders to destroy the strongholds of religious formalism and hypocrisy because everyone at this dinner party thought for sure when the day came at the end of the age they would be at the feast in the kingdom of God. They would be eating the bread in the kingdom of God because they had ticked all of the religious boxes, because they had all of the right associations. And Jesus says, if this is how you think, then let me tell you a story. A story about a man who prepared a great banquet, and he invited many guests. It's important to note that Jesus uses the illustration of a banquet to describe heaven. It's a thing of great joy. He he doesn't describe it as a waiting room. He doesn't describe it as a holding cell. No, it's a big family event, a feast. I'm sure many of us are longing for those if we've Not had that in a while. So a general invitation goes out that there will be a banquet. This was customary uh, in this culture. This was sort of like the save the date. Hey, we're putting on a banquet. Mark it in your calendar. The feast that the man at the dinner party brings up, possibly to change the subject, is the very feast that Jesus is now referring to. And the imagery of the general invitation as it relates to the kingdom of God, these people were the recipients of that initial invitation. The general invitation that had come from prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah that said, there is a feast coming and you need to be ready. There is a kingdom being established and you are invited. And the people at this dinner party couldn't miss the point Jesus was making in verse 17. And at that time, at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. It was no longer that the kingdom was coming, it was that the kingdom is here now. The invitations went out. Now the question was whether you were coming or not. Again, we cannot miss the point 
that this is something of great joy. God is graciously inviting us to his banquet, his heaven, greater than anything we could dream of. And now the decision, now there's this decision of whether or not to go. And you begin to realize that the excuses that are given here in relation to the banquet are representative of the kinds of responses made by men and women when invited to share in the kingdom of God. The first person says, I just bought a field and I must go see it. I mean, can it wait till tomorrow? I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I need to examine them. As a person whose family comes from the Middle East, I can tell you, ain't nobody buying oxen without examining them and getting a deal. Now, that's not an insult. That's a compliment. But it's not a good reason here. It's an excuse. And the best is the third one. I can't come. I I just got married. Well, why not? Well, it's not me. It's my wife. She won't let me go. Excuses. Excuses, excuses. And they aren't even good ones. They are silly and they are ridiculous. Every excuse is saying to the host, I have more pressing matters. I have greater desires than spending time in your company. And this fits with our theme of humility and, and exaltation from the earlier verses. The excuses are made because attendance at the banquet requires humility. Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, a, a recognition of spiritual poverty, poverty. The exaltation is not in the here and now, which is what those guests at the dinner party wanted. And so they miss out on just how amazing it is to have been invited to the banquet. They are missing how gracious the host was to to think of them. And these are the excuses that men and women give when invited into the kingdom of God. Is it any surprise that the host of the banquet becomes angry? But instead of responding with revenge, which is almost what you are expecting, because he sounds very angry, he responds with more grace. What a loving and gracious host. So he orders the servant to go into the streets and the alleys to bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. He wants to share his blessings with whoever will come. Do you think the host is justified in being angry? When the general invitation is extended and the response was, yes, we will come. But when the time came for arrival, the invitees didn't want to be there. And God looks down from heaven, having made admission free at the expense of the death of his son and sent out his servants to invite you to come and take your place at the feast. And the response comes, I'm sorry, I have things to take care of. I have things to look after. I have a family. Uh, Your banquet doesn't really look all that impressive to me. Now, historically, 
This is the message that went to the religious, those who had the benefit of, of looking for the coming of the Messiah to, to usher in the kingdom of God. But the excuses come. So the servants bring in the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame. This is the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners that Jesus went to. But there is still room at the banquet. So it is to the Gentiles that are, are brought in by the, the highways and the hedges. Well, what is the lesson through this parable that Jesus gives us? I think it is twofold. One, if you have had the benefit of growing up with familiarity with Christ, familiarity of Christ, and I know that there are some of us in here, and you have perhaps mistaken familiarity with what he said for a genuine, repentant, trusting faith in what he did, and that explains the disconnect between what you say and what you do. Are you empowered by the Spirit of God, putting your trust in the Son of God? Not all who profess faith in Jesus will continue to the end and be saved. The Bible makes that clear. Many will cry out, Lord, Lord, we, we perform miracles in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. The, the confidence you can have is if you have put your trust in Christ and recognize your invitation to the banquet. Your salvation is by grace alone in Christ alone. You see, the Pharisees wanted to impress people and God by keeping the law. But you cannot keep the law. The point of the law was to show your failure and your need of grace. But accepting grace requires humility. I cannot keep the law. I recognize that I cannot keep the law. That, that's hard for people to say. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The second lesson is for those who do not feel worthy. Do you see it? One thinks they are saved by the wrong means, that they are saved by keeping the law, they are exalting themselves. The other thinks themselves unworthy, and you're probably abundantly aware of the sin in your life, but you don't know where to go with it or what to do with it. Church is not a gathering of people who have cleansed themselves enough to come in through the doors. Church is the gathering of people that know inherently we are not worthy. But because of Christ, I can come as a redeemed person. There is no sin so great, so repetitive, that God will reject you if you are willing to receive His grace. So you see, this, this awkward dinner party was for the benefit of of all those who are willing, willing to hear and receive, willing to see the kingdom of God for what it is, willing to receive the good news. This awkward dinner party was for our benefit. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. If this sermon had points, it would be one 
How do you view God? His invitation to the banquet. And second, how do you view your fellow man? Is man just a means to an end, a way of puffing yourself up, a a way of advancing your career, your life, or whatever it is? Or do you see people in need of care and of Christ? It's an upside-down kingdom. And we just celebrated last week the climax of humility. The suffering and dying on the cross of, of Christ. And in this story, as we progress through Luke, he is, Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer to the day when he will lay it all down for those who put their trust in him so that we too will be exalted when the time comes. Things to remember things to hold and cherish in our hearts uh, as we go out into the places that he's provided for us and the, the neighborhoods we're in and then the jobs that we have and the schools we're in. So let's pray that the Spirit would seal these things in our hearts and minds and remember them. Father, we understand that it's It's vital that we understand the vertical. That we understand our relationship to you and with you before we can get anything right about the horizontal. And yet here we're leaders in the synagogue and leaders in the temple who were getting the horizontal wrong because it emphasized that they had the vertical wrong, that they had a wrong understanding of the banquet to which they had been invited to. Father, may we not read about Pharisees and think how far distant they are, but may we see the Phariseeism in our own hearts. Understanding that sometimes we do want to put you on a, on a judgment seat and, 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 and make you fit within our own rules and our own laws that we have created. But, oh God, that we would see you for who you are, that you are the creator, the author, the sustainer. And that we are the ones who sit upon the, the seat of judgment and, and, need to be, and need to understand that right relationship. But because of the blood of Christ, we can be redeemed and forgiven and we, we, we have that relationship restored and repaired with you. And because of that, we can look to the community around us that you've provided for us. And we can have words of life and not death. And we, we can not exhibit hatred and animosity, but we can look at the the foreigner and the stranger and we can exhibit love and compassion because we have been shown compassion, because we have been redeemed. Oh, that this place, your church, would be the headquarters of that understanding that we would come here as different people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and different heritages and we would understand the means of grace, that we would understand what it is you've done for us, and that in understanding that truth and growing together in our communities, we could go out and proclaim that truth to those around us, that we don't have to live the way the world is going. We don't have to chase after cults and groups and, and categories and but we can sit under grace and we can be gracious towards others. So, Father, would these things reign true in our hearts and our minds as we 
study your word, as we interact with people, that Christ would reign supreme in our hearts, that Christ would reign supreme in our homes. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Revival is inevitable. It's, it's just pray that this truth will be sealed in our hearts.